Dear attendees, welcome to the ISACOS webinar on insertional Achilles tendinopathies. My name is Gianluigi Canata of Italy. I am the current chair of the ISACOS Leg, Ankle and Foot Committee. Along with the deputy chair, Mechalus Ogan of the United States, will be your moderators in today's webinar on insertional Achilles tendinopathies. I would like to introduce our distinguished panelists. They all are great experts in the field. This is the program. Masato Takao will start talking on terminology and epidemiology. Then Tomohiro Matsui will present on pathophysiology. Kangai Tang on Achilles tendon healing. Mechalus Hogan on the conservative management. Stefan Guillot on the endoscopic management. I'll talk on the open surgery. Kenneth Hunt will present on postoperative management. Nasef Mohamed Abdelatif will present some clinical cases. John Carson will lead the discussion. We are taking questions from those who are participating live today via the webinar Q&A app. Please type your question in the Q&A box and it will be answered by our presenters. Thank you once again for attending this webinar. We would like to take a moment to invite you to join ISACOS if you are not currently a member. ISACOS is offering access to the most recent 2021 Global Congress content with the 2022 membership. Now we'll start with Masato Takao. His presentation is on terminology and epidemiology. It's my honor to be a part speaker of this webinar. I'd like to talk about terminology and epidemiology. I have no disclaimer to disclose. The first report for pain around Achilles tendon was done by Lenau in 1863 as the right peritendicrinals of Achilles tendon. Since then, this condition has been reported by various names and has fallen into terminological chaos. To resolve this terminological chaos, Dr. Juan Dyke and his colleague reviewed and summarized past papers. This slide shows the history of time for Achilles tendon-related disorders. After the first report by Lehner, this pathology has been given various names. For this, Crane and Baxter proposed to divide them into insertional and non-insertional tendinitis according to the site of the region. In addition, Mercury advocated the proper use of tendinopathy, paratendinopathy, and pantendinopathy according to the pathological condition. Accordingly, Dr. Van Dyke and his colleagues recommended to use the term for Achilles tendon-related disorders as mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy, insertional Achilles tendinopathy, paratendinopathy, retrocarcanial bursitis, and superficial carcanial bursitis. And they are now broadly accepted worldwide. Some of you may wonder if it is a Haglund syndrome. 
The first report for Haglund syndrome was done by Haglund in 1928. Since then, various names have been reported for this pathology, as shown this slide, and it has become terminological chaos. This slide shows the history of the term for Haglund syndrome. You can see that acrodinia was used in ancient times, and with the times, terms such as pump bump, Haglund syndrome, and deformity were used. As you all may know, Haglund syndrome consists of three pathologies, including bursitis, posterior superior calcaneal prominence, and insertional acilis tendinopathy. But the triad doesn't always exist together. Barrock reported the occurrence of insertional acute tendinopathy in Haglund syndrome was 40.7%. Accordingly, insertional acute tendinopathy should be distinguished to Haglund syndrome. However, we have to admit that terminological chaos still remains. Anyway, main theme of this webinar is insertional acute tendinopathy. So hereafter. I would like to talk about epidemiology just for insertional acute tendinopathy. According to past reports, it is reported that insertional acute tendinopathy accounts for approximately 20% of acute tendon related disorders. Insertional acute tendinopathy tends to occur in more active persons, whereas no insertional tendon injuries tend to occur in older, less active, and overweight persons. And older patients with insertional acute tendinopathy tend to be female, sedentary, less athletic, overweight, and frequently have medical conditions such as hypertension or diabetes. Intrinsic factors include morphological abnormalities of the lower extremity, aging, some oral medications, and medical disorders. There are several extrinsic factors, as shown in the slide, which are considered to be caused by excessive mechanical overload and training error. In conclusion, recommended terms for acrestendon-related disorders are insertional acrestendinopathy, mid-portion acrestendinopathy, paratendinopathy, retrocalcaneal bursitis, and superficial calcaneal bursitis. Insertional acute tendinopathy is one of the triad of Haglund syndrome, but doesn't always exist together. Insertional acute tendinopathy tends to be occur in more active persons, whereas non-insertional tendinopathy tends to occur in older, less active, and overweight persons. In treating and preventing insertional acute tendinopathy, care should be taken to intrinsic and extrinsic factors. Thank you for your attention. Good evening, everyone. This is Tomohiro Matsui from Saiseika Inara Hospital, Japan. It is great honor to be given this opportunity to present you. Today, I'm going to talk about the pathophysiology of insertional acute tendinopathy. I have nothing to disclose. First, I'm going to talk about anatomy. 
anatomy is important to understand pathology. As you know, Achilles tendon consists of conjoined tendons from the superficial gastrocnemius and deep throat muscles. Some cadaveric studies have demonstrated a twisted structure in Achilles tendon, which internally rotates about 90 degrees. You can see this twisted structure by dynamic ultrasonographic imaging. Van Dijk proposed terminology for Achilles tendon-related disorders and consists of the following three terms for incisional region. Retrocalcanial bursitis, superficial calcanial bursitis, and incisional Achilles tendinopathy. These three disorders are often associated and we sometimes can't separate each other exactly. Hagran's deformity is also a common term for prominence of posterior superior part of the calcaneus, which is related to retrocalcaneal bursitis and superficial calcaneal bursitis. In my opinion, when we treat incestual tendinopathy and related disorders, it will be better to take the cause of mechanical stress into consideration. Tendons serve to transfer the pool of muscles to bone. So, Bone tendon junction is a frequent site of disorder. On the other hand, most tendons change its direction around the bony pulley to divide the load to insertion. Simultaneously, bended tendons take compressive stress at pulley and repetitive impingement result in disorder at this site. Today, I want to talk about these two types of mechanical stress which cause insertional acute tendinopathy and related disorder. First, I will talk about the insertion, bone tendon junction. Insertion of the Achilles tendon is so-called fibrocartilaginous endesis. In other words, direct insertion. It's a term opposed to fibrous endesis and indirect insertion. Fibrocartilaginous endesis consists of four layers and connect tendon to bone through fibrocartilage tissue. Repetitive tensile stress to insertion cause longitudinal fissures at fibrocartilage layer and bony spur formation at the distal posterior part of the insertion. Longitudinal fissures generally run along the lines of the endotenum, and occasionally cartilage clusters are observed around fissure. Sometimes longitudinal fissure extended into the tendon proper, and degeneration and ossification of the tendon occur. These histopathological changes are similar to that of osteoarthritis. Next, I want to talk about pathology caused by compressive stress. As I mentioned earlier, it is well known fact that tendons and ligaments are often bended at bony pulley and change their direction. These structures are called wrap around region. In case of arcuate tendon, Posterior superior aspect of calcaneus works at the pulley for Achilles tendon. In the case of enlarged prominence, this is known as Hagrand deformity. Many pathologies are caused by this prominence. The surface of the tendon and the bone is covered by fibrocartilage, where compressive stress is applied. It considered as an adaptation to compressive load. Though, 
fibrocartilage is strong to mechanical stress. It is a vascular and a neural tissue. It has poor repairability, so that micro injuries at fibrocartilage tissue are easy to be built up and might cause chronic disorder by repetitive compressive stress. Basal weight part of the Kegel's hot pad moves in and out to work as a buffer against this compressive stress. Repetitive compression causes retrocalcanial bursitis, and synovitis is often observed at the proximal part of the wraparound region. At the surface of bony pulley and acrostendo, delamination and erosion of the fibro cartilage are observed. Sometimes these injuries extended into the tendon proper, and inflammation or degeneration change of the tendon can be observed. So healthy tendon is a vascular tissue. Once tendon is damaged, new blood vessels make an invasion into tendon. It is also reported that those neovascularization involves nerve fibers, which might result in chronic pain. We conducted a cadaveric study to investigate the factors which affect to the contact pressure by putting miniature pressure sensor between aqueous tendon and calcaneus. In our study, the tensile loading of the aqueous tendon and the ankle dorsal flexion leads to an increase in the compressive stress between the aqueous tendon and the calcaneus. When comparing medial and lateral side of aqueous tendon attachment to calcaneus, attachment area is wide at medial and narrow at lateral. It means aqueous tendon tends to be bent and take larger compression stress at the lateral side of the attachment, which contributes to medial head of gastrocnemius muscle. My take home message is there are two different roads contribute to disorder around in certain area of the aqueous tendon. One is tensile stress at bone tendon junction and the other is compressive stress between aqueous tendon and calcaneus. Both pathologies occur sometimes separately and sometimes simultaneously. This is all for my presentation. Thank you. So I will speak about conservative management. I have no uh, disclosures for this talk. Uh, we have lost a giant and we honor Freddie, Dr. Fu for all he has done for so many of us and Issacos. So the presentation as discussed, a physical bump, and also a chronic insertional calcifications. You often can have calcifications of the insertion in addition to the bony Haglund's deformity. And in this particular case, this individual also has very intense and chronic insertional tendinopathy and calcifications, calcifications within the body of the tendon, and also a pump bump or Haglund's deformity. My treatment options in the conservative setting include extracorporeal shockwave therapy. Questions as to the ideal regimen still remain. I use the protocol from the International Society of Shockwave Therapy. Outcomes may be as good as physical therapy alone, but I do this in combination. Also stretching. Uh, stretching and eccentric stretches are very important, and this helps reduce pain and also results in good outcomes. When we look into the utilization of topical glycerol trinitrate, essentially uh, utilizing a nitroglycerin patch. Uh, this does not work as well for the insertional as it does for non-insertional tendinopathy. 
However, it is a good conservative option that can often lead to an increase in blood flow for the insertion. When we go further, brief immobilization within conservative management is important. Uh, I will often go with brief immobilization or uh, just limiting high impact activities, potentially with a cam boot. From there, there is also an option of utilizing ultrasound uh, guided uh, injection of platelet rich plasma. Some studies have shown possible benefit. This image here, more you have to still place it within the peritinon as well as into the insertion. I must admit in my practice and in my experience, this is not as successful for insertional tendinopathy. However, it is an option for treatment uh, as a non-surgical and conservative uh, treatment option. As we go further, when can people play and remain active during conservative management? Uh, there are several studies that have looked into uh, continuing activities uh, with insertional tendinopathy during treatment and have shown no uh, negative effects uh, of continued activities during treatment uh, and no risk of rupture, even in the setting of peritendinitis associated with this. However, I do advise my patients that there is an increased risk of increasing the tendon degeneration and there it does remain a small risk of an acute on chronic uh, disruption uh, at the insertion with activities. Uh, as far as my conservative phases, in the acute phase, I move forward with rest, ice, compression, uh, and elevate, excuse me, uh, the rice method. Furthermore, heel lifts and clogs, shoes that are more comfortable, open back can be very helpful. Anti-inflammatories, non-steroidal. Again, shockwave therapy, I utilize a judicious uh, use of night splints and the nitro patch. Injection of platelet-rich plasma in my practice is never the acute phase treatment plan. Uh, I believe this should be used after these additional uh, initial uh, non-invasive, uh, non-injection therapies have been unsuccessful. And also from the recovery phase, eccentric Achilles stretching and strengthening uh, once acute pain has subsided. And then cross-training by alternative uh, high impact uh, and, and alternative activities. Uh, you want to increase activity gradually and you want to alternate impact activities and also replace shoes uh, that have excessive wear and uh, a maintenance program of stretching each day and after each activity and multiple times a day is very important for long-term recovery and to hopefully avoid surgery. Again, our lab has worked extensively on this and thankful for the opportunity to present here from Pittsburgh. Uh, and thank you all very much. Respect the past and embrace the future, as Freddie always said. And thank you, thank you, thank you. So this is, a, I will present today uh, the technique that I have uh, uh, that will be published to uh, do the, uh, the, to treat the insertional uh, tendinopathy with uh, uh, endoscopically. And uh, it is possible to do it with a three portal that are um, uh, presented in this slide. One is on uh, the, between the middle turn and the uh, medial turn, uh, third of the Achilles tendon. The other one is between the, the Achilles tendon and the, on the lateral side and the calcaneal um, corner. And the third one is at the end of the insertion uh, distally. So uh, if you, the, the technique is to try to, to make two uh, area of uh, working area. 
uh, it's a little bit like a shoulder surgery of the rat attack cuff repair. So the first uh, time, the first step is to make uh, a space between the skin and the tendon. And then uh, with the lateral uh, portal, it's we and with the burr, uh, we make a, a space between the tendon and the bone. And uh, the, the, the distal part is uh, the, uh, the, the, the portal for the scope. So uh, then you, we can do by this uh, with two portal a suture with uh, two anchors on the proximal part. Uh, it's uh, with uh, that uh, uh, take the tendon with the mattress suture. And uh, on the distal part, you can, we can put a, a second row anchor uh, and make a very solid uh, uh, fixation of the tendon uh, with this technique without opening. So this is the movie. So this is the creation of the of the working area between the skin and the and the tendon. Uh, you can see that uh, we have we, we need to to have a complete uh, uh, space uh, and uh, connecting all the portal together. Uh, and then uh, we try we start to do the preparation between the bone and the tendon with uh, the burr the the. the the bird that we use for the MI surgery of the forefoot. And uh, you see that uh, it is very important with the left hand to palpate all the, all the periphery. And in, in, uh, with this uh, type of, uh, of preparation, you can see here the space between the tendon and the bone, and then move from this space to the superior space between uh, the skin and, uh, and the tendon. And here you can see the, the smooth trocar on the lateral side. And uh, here you can control the, 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 the deep space and the superficial space between the, 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 the tendon and the, and the skin. Then at this time, if everything is prepared, you can put your anchors. So you put, you, we start with the first anchors. It's the medial one. On, uh, at the moment, I'm using uh, Elix anchor from uh, the Pew and remove one of the sutures. And then uh, what is important is to pass another uh, uh, one of the stand in another uh, part of the tendon with a needle and a, a, a nylon inside that we use like a suture passer. And in in uh, in this case, you can see this uh, this uh, uh, nylon uh, that his look is uh, um, uh, using as a shuttle relay. Uh, uh, here you can see the stand uh, passing into uh, the the shuttle relay, and in the, uh, with this technique, you have two stands uh, that are uh, putting uh, that are passing through the tendon. Uh, for uh, for the to, to make uh, the, the suture after to, to make a, a mattress suture, so this is the, other, the the second anchor here that you can see. And we remove one of uh, the uh, the suture, and uh, so we have uh, two colors. That it's better. It's very nice to uh, to uh, it's uh, it's easier like that. And then we use the same technique to pass one of the suture of the second anchor uh, through the tendon. Uh, to make another uh, another uh, suture, here you can see the needle passing through the tendon, and then uh, coming back uh, on the deep side, and with the same technique of uh, shuttle relay, 
you can pass the definitive uh, suture uh, in another, in, through the tendon. So here, the, here the passing of the second uh, uh, anchor, and uh, you, you, we, we will have a visualization after of all the four stands of the two anchors here between the skin and the tendon. You can see here one of the suture, the, the other uh, suture and the, the other passing on this side. So this is the, uh, the, the superficial side and in the deep side between the bone and the, and the tendon, here is the, 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 the two sutures. So then we were making the uh, the, the knot uh, with a dot pusher, just like in uh, rotator cuff uh, repair. So here you can see the four stands uh, from the one of the of the uh, of the portal, and we then put a first uh, uh, mattress suture uh, on on these two anchors. So we have uh, at this point a good fixation, and we continue the we improve the fixation with the. Uh, the second row uh, fixation of anchors. So there is three anchors. This is the final aspect that you can see here. You can you will see the two the the distal anchor and the two sutures uh, that are passing through uh, the tendon. Uh, this is the control of the of the suture at the end of the of the surgery. Uh, this is the way that I'm doing the immobilization. I put um, uh, 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 anterior uh, orthesis, and this is the results at three months uh, with a strength uh, completely normal and uh, uh, a woman that is uh, able to uh, to do uh, to put on the heel. And uh, I think uh, that we that we have uh, some good. Uh, uh, improvement of the technique with this technique that is uh, uh, become more and more popular in France and we ha you have to follow the the French uh, work uh, because the we will we with the French Society of Arthroscopy we are doing a, a big uh, a big uh, study on that and uh, the the impression is that we that we have is to that we improve uh, a lot the results of uh, on this uh, pathology Thank you very much. Good evening. Hello to everybody. I'm Gianluigi Canata. My presentation is on open surgical management. These are my disclosures. Distal Achilles tendinopathies are distinguished in pre-insertional and insertional. And we may also consider the superficial calcaneal bursitis. I acknowledge that there are terminological issues that will be discussed. Patients not responding to conservative management for at least three or six months may require surgery. Which surgical approach? In insertional tendinopathies, we may prefer open or mini open techniques, while in pre-insertional tendinopathies, endoscopic, open, or mini-open. We know that there, are, there is the possibility of postoperative complications, even if rare, like wound deletions, infections, sural nerve damages, tendon necrosis. So mini-invasive techniques should be preferred. 
the aim of the surgery is the debridement of diseased tendon tissue and the calcifications within the tendon insertion. The attachment or augmentation of the tendon when the residual Achilles tendon following debridement is inadequate for optical function may be needed. The surgery is better indicated for patients younger than 50 years. In elder people, persistent pain and limited function may last after surgery due to limited vascularization and the lower capacity for full recovery. A central tendon splitting incision in insertional Achilles tendinopathies is preferable to better remove the degenerative tissue and the calcifications. A medial or lateral approach do not often show the real extent of the calcifications, usually located within the middle third of the tendon insertion. A lateral or medial incision may disrupt the blood supply. A careful evaluation of the specific tendon pathology before surgery is mandatory. We need a clear patient evaluation, clinical assessment, and an appropriate imaging before surgery. This is a tendon splitting technique. You see the little incision and the calcification removed from the distal tendon. This is another example of excision of the calcific insertional body. These uh, mini invasive approaches have been uh, widely described showing similar results if uh, an endoscopic or a mini open technique is used. Aglund deformity may be addressed with with a mini open lateral access when distal surgery is needed. This is an example of a, a mini invasive uh, technique for the treatment of uh, aglund deformity in local anesthesia. This was presented in 1997 in Buenos Aires at the Isacos Congress. This way, with a mini-invasive approach, the insertion area is easily spared. And if there is a concomitant insertional pathology, we may use a double incision surgical technique to address both pathologies. And these are images of the two different techniques used for two different pathologies. This is a case of a triathlete uh, who has been operated on the left side for a pre-insertional pathology in 2019, and uh, on the right side in October 2020 for a pre-insertional an insertional pathology. Curiously, this patient had been operated in 1994 for a proximal ACL repair with good results. 
this same athlete could compete in September 2021 in a Ironman competition with excellent results, demonstrating that these techniques may give excellent results. More information on these techniques may be found in these books. You all are invited to the next ESCA Congress in Paris, April 2022. Thank you for your attention. Well, what an honor to be here. I, I want to say thanks to John Luigi and, and Mac for inviting me to be a part of this. Well, what a tremendous group of talks we've already heard. So I'm, I'm hoping to add a little bit to that in terms of how we rehabilitate these, uh, these surgeries. Um, but that was, uh, it was really neat to see all of those techniques. So I'm, I'm already learning a lot here. Um, here are my disclosures. None of these are relevant to, uh, to this topic. So um, as we think about treating uh, Haglund's deformities, I, I really compartmentalize these into, into two different types. One is what I call the Haglund's lesion and what we reference uh, that today. That's basically the bone spur that's creating the bursitis, may have some edema that's painful and, and may do a little bit of degeneration of the tendon, but the tendon is overall reasonably healthy. The other is, uh, is the insertional tendinosis. So that's when, when it's primarily a tendon problem where the tendon has started to degenerate and there's often calcifications within the tendon that, that add to the pain. So my approach to management, uh, it, it really depends on this. And there's a lot of overlap here uh, between the two types. In general, with, with just the Haglund's lesion where the tendon is reasonably healthy, this, this is very easy to, to address using arthroscopy or tendoscopy. Um, you can remove the spur, you can use a burr if you need it, um, and remove anything that's sort of digging into that tendon and, and creating that bursal inflammation and potential tendon degeneration. Um, and because most of the tendon issue is in the front or anterior, you can debride that with, with a shaver to kind of clean it up. And whether you like to add a biologic or a dry needling is, is really sort of dealer's choice. Um, but, but these Haglund's lesions can easily be addressed with endoscopy. The other is the insertional tendinosis or tendinopathy. And that, that's when you have to do some actual debridement of tissue. There's degenerative tissue that's not likely to get better on its own and is a, and is a real uh, pain generator. <clears throat> so an open treatment to remove the calcifications, to debride the unhealthy part of the tendons. In some cases, as, um, as both, <clears throat> uh, both Stefan and, and John Luigi mentioned, uh, an FHL transfer can be necessary. Um, so it, in, in these cases, rehabilitation has to be very different because you've done much more tissue disruption and you're really depending on that tissue healing back for a good outcome. So the general principles to rehabilitation is early motion and early load loading. Now there's good evidence to suggest that the, the Achilles tendon wants to see load. So we wanna give it enough load that it can heal properly. And that increases the strength of the tendon and the strength of the bone interface with the tendon. You wanna keep the swelling down and you wanna allow a safe return to sport at a time that is, that is reasonable. Now, the endoscopic approach obviously allows a much more aggressive rehabilitation strategy because you're not relying on tendon healing back to bone because you haven't detached the tendon. So we can be much more aggressive. Now, if you look back to 2006, Emilio Wagner published a very nice um, description of a technique of an open uh, reconstruction of Achilles for insertional tendinosis. Now, what they did was non-weight bearing in a cast for eight weeks. 
Now, I think most of us don't do that now because we recognize how important it is to get the ankle moving early and to load it early. Uh, and they started uh, formal physical therapy at 12 weeks. <clears throat> the endoscopic approach can be much more aggressive. So after endoscopy, in general, you can start these moving right away. There, there's not a safety issue. You don't worry about that tendon pulling away. And, and again, that tendon wants to see load. Um, and so most of us are probably in between these two approaches. Now, we, we published our outcomes uh, of following uh, insertional debridement with, with or without an FHL transfer. And what we did there was non-weight bearing for two weeks and then a walking cast for two weeks. And we start rehab really in six weeks. So that, that's sort of in the middle there. Um, <clears throat> a very nice article came out, came out last year compared a more aggressive rehab protocol to a, a regular or more conservative rehab protocol. What they described is in the regular protocol, immobilization for two weeks, followed by a slow progression to weight bearing out to six to eight weeks and then regular shoes. And they compared that to an accelerated protocol where they immediately started moving the ankle. They allowed full weight bearing at two weeks and regular shoes at six weeks. And what they found was that the, the outcome metrics favored the accelerated rehab protocol early, but there was no difference at six and 12 months. So and no complications occurred in either group. So what that tells me is it's safe to accelerate rehabilitation, even if you're doing a reconstruction as, uh, as they described in this paper, and as you see in the, in the image on the screen. So this is uh, my protocol. And, and again, I, I use two different protocols, one for the endoscopic approach, which is more for the, the Haglund's bursitis, a little less tendon disease. Um, I do immobilize them in a splint for, for, for Five, up to five days. It really depends on how much swelling I expect and, and whether I can trust the patient to stay off of it. Um, but, it's, but within five days, I'm starting range of motion. Uh, I'm starting load bearing at, at five to 14 days, and I'm trying to get to some normal function. And then at two weeks, I'll allow the patient to get into regular shoes. I usually hold off on anti-gravity treadmill running until four to six weeks, and then we can get a little more aggressive. And, and most patients are running comfortably at the two to three month mark and I let them start to train when they're ready. And obviously that's different for every patient. When I do the open debridement, very different because I'm typically relying on some portion of that tendon healing back. And so I'll keep them immobilized for two weeks and then I'll go to uh, the boot with a peel away heel lift to get them walking flat. Uh, I'll let them into regular shoes usually at six to eight weeks and start my stretching and functional strengthening. And then 12 to 16 weeks is when I'll really let them start to run. So it's a similar protocol. It's just delayed about a month because I, I need that time uh, for the tissue to heal back. And, and, and of course, to prevent swelling from occurring with a, a more invasive procedure. So there's a very nice resource that Karin Silbernagel published uh, last year. Um, the reference is here and, and I've adapted this from, uh, from this reference. They looked at the, the loading peak for each of these activities and divided them into tiers. So we really use this as a guide now um, because we know which activities don't really load the tendon much and we start those early and we know which ones load the tendon a lot like hopping, drop jumps, um, and, and of course running. And so we use a graduated protocol based, uh, based in part on this guide in order to uh, allow an appropriate amount of load when the tendon is ready. And again, this is highly patient specific and certainly specific to the procedure that's performed. So in summary, effective rehab techniques exist for open endoscopic treatment. We're really moving toward early mobilization, early loading, and an accelerated weight-bearing rehab, even for those reconstructive procedures, uh, even with an FHL transfer. 
Um, and of course the protocol can be catered to the athlete where they are in their season, where they are in their sport and, and kind of how they're recovering from a surgery. Uh, it's always important to be mindful of that. Uh, so I want to thank you for your attention and uh, for allowing me to be a part of this. And back to the team. Hello and thank you for watching this presentation. Um, I would like to thank uh, the ESACOS for um, organizing this uh, very nice uh, webinar. Um, and I was called upon to talk about two clinical cases of insertional Achilles tendinopathies, and we do know terminology would play a role here. So I am Nasif Mohammed Nasif, a professor of orthopedics, foot and ankle reconstructive surgery from Cairo, Egypt. So our first case is a male, he's 43 years old, he's a bank employee, rather sedentary. He's complaining of pain on the back of the heel, which increases with activity and with certain closed shoe wear. He has tenderness on the posteromedial bony surface of the heel bone. He can do a single heel rise. He has tried conservative treatment for six months, which constituted of Achilles stretching exercises. He did have a steroid injection outside our hospital, which was done uh, uh, more than three months ago. And uh, the report of that injection was that the, the physician tried to insert the uh, steroids in the bursa. He was then referred to our hospital and he, he's looking for a long lasting solution. So these are his x-rays, and if you look at the um, uh, Fowler and Phillip angles in addition to the parallel pitch lines, you will see he does have a significant amount of bony uh, protrusion or hagland or hump pump. Um, the MRIs were also significant in that they did have a significant amount of bursitis, but there was also a homogeneous um, uh, Achilles insertion or tendon, so uh, that didn't show much of a de degeneration. And so consequently, we scheduled him for an arthroscopic excision of the bone in addition to a bursectomy. Now, this uh, intraoperative photograph is from one of our earlier cases where we would always rely on the C-arm. The patient would be placed prone and we would use the two classic posterior portals as um, uh, described by Nick van Dijk. Now, the C-arm in the beginning would show us uh, the um, insertion site. Uh, of the um, uh, arthroscopy and the, we use a normal 4.0 arthroscope and we started off with the bursectomy using a normal arthroscopic shaver uh, to remove the bursa, the inflamed bursa, and then we proceed to the bony um, uh, removal. Uh, as you can see, even sometimes the bone is very soft in that part and you can start actually by the shaver itself, the soft tissue resector, which can remove quite a significant amount of bone. But then, of course, we had to go uh, with the um, uh, uh, 4.5 uh, burr and we're using it here to delineate the most distal insertion site of the Achilles tendon. And this is after the removal of the bone and the bursa and we can see right down uh, adequate resection of bone has been done. So this was the initial uh, preoperative x-ray and this is the uh, immediate post-operative x-ray. And we actually uh, published this as a case series that was way back in 2003. And I think it was one of the very early um, case series, uh, the very first case series for endoscopic calcaneoplasty. And I would like to recognize your Gerash here. Now our second case is also a male. He's 41 years old. He's a manual worker. He's actually the oxygen pipeline worker in our hospital. And he complained um, for, for months on, uh, for, from pain on the back of his heel, but also along his Achilles. He did have that pain at rest, but it, it started to increase with activity. 
Now, the tenderness was not only on the bone, but it was also on the lower Achilles and its insertion. He had exquisite tenderness at the lower two centimeters of the Achilles insertion, and he could not do a single heel rise. He had tried conservative treatment for six months um, and Achilles stretching exercises. And as you can see, there's a significant amount of soft tissue and bony um, uh, swelling on the back of his heel. Now, this was his initial presenting preoperative x-rays. And in addition to the um, excess um, hackland, you can see there's also uh, an, an osteophyte, which is protruding into the Achilles um, tendon insertion. Uh, I apologize for the quality of the preoperative MRI, but it's just to show that there was some significant degeneration inside the Achilles tendon itself. And so we decided to take him to surgery and we decided to do an, an open excision of the um, bony protrusion in addition to an Achilles tendon debridement. And because based on the initial um, MRIs, we thought that we would not remove or resect more than 50% uh, or nowhere near 50% of the Achilles tendon. So we decided to augment that again with a suture bridge technique. Now we, we do um, uh, use a J, um, lazy J incision, which in this case was based medially on the medial side of the tendon. And so it extends from medial to lateral at the lowermost part of the heel and um, uh, based on the pathology we had. We also remove part of the Achilles tendon expansion onto the calcaneal bone because that will uh, tell us how to tension back the Achilles at the end of the procedure. And so after the um, ex a good adequate exposure, we would use osteotomes or an oscillating saw and we would remove an adequate amount of bone, um, uh, usually it's three uh, centimeters in width uh, by two centimeters by uh, one centimeter in height. Um, and then we would prepare the um, bone um, uh, on the Achilles, on the uh, calconeus uh, for the uh, coming su uh, swivel lock uh, screws uh, adequately spaced apart. And uh, in this case, we use the um, titanium um, um, ended uh, swivel locks, but of course you can use the um, absorbable ones. And of course we pass the fiber tape uh, into the Achilles tendon after its uh, debridement. And so this was the um, uh, intraoperative uh, uh, photograph at the end of the procedure showing the double row fixation of the suture bridge. And this was the um, x-ray, immediate post-operative x-ray, uh, showing the resection of the bone and the um, uh, suture bridge um, swivel locks. And we had a five-year follow-up for this particular patient. Uh, as you can see, the x-rays are very fairly recent. And we also did an MRI for him, and we showed that there was an adequate homogenous uh, signal on the Achilles tendon. Um, he, could, he could return back to his activity. Um, he, he could do repetitive um, um, single leg uh, raises. And um, as you can see, the incision is barely um, noticeable. And so we tried to show uh, two cases from a very mild one uh, to a rather moderate one that were pertinent to this um, webinar. And uh, we would like to thank you for your attention. Uh, Jon, it's your time now. You can, uh, uh, you can start uh, with uh, uh, guiding the discussion. Thank you, Dr. Kanata. Thank you, everybody on the panel for uh, uh, great talks and uh, we have about 30 minutes for discussion or something like that. So we have 170 participants and I would like to see more than two questions. I am Jon Carlson from Sweden and I would like to welcome you all. 
I think that we can start with um, the questions that we have in the panel, the question and answer panel. So the first question would be, do we have any randomized control trial about the use of PRP? I, um, Makalus. Anybody? Yeah, I can I can grab that one. So um, the, the answer to the question is yes, there, there are a number of randomized trials looking at PRP for non-insertional Achilles tendinosis, including one that was published recently, uh, comparing it to a, a sham procedure, basically, that showed no difference in outcome. Um, I'm not aware of any uh, um, randomized studies of PRP for insertional tendinopathy. I think that's a good idea. There, there's less evidence to support it. And, and I do not believe that there is a randomized study for this indication, uh, but there's good evidence for, um, for non-insertional Achilles. So when we talk about the uh, Achilles tendinopathy, we are, you are talking about tendinopathy that occurs uh, uh, two to seven centimeters proximal to the insertion or to the calcaneus. And that's a way different issue than the insertional tendinopathy. Do we really, do we really believe that uh, PRP is, is useful when it comes to insertion of tendinopathy, for instance, with calcification inside the tendon? Uh, I direct this question to the panel. Anybody? Uh, Michaelis, Hogan, are you there? Um, Please take the ball when I when I when I when I drop it. Stefan, any comments? Yes. Sorry. My question was whether you think that there is there would really be any place for PRP uh, when treating uh, Achilles uh, insertional pathology uh, as compared with Achilles tendinopathy, which is higher up in the tendon. Well, I think, uh, um, I don't know at the moment, uh, in, my, in my part, there is no, uh, there is no uh, uh, place. And I think that, in fact, the, 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 what I think on, my, on the treatment that I proposed for the Achilles the insertion of Achilles tendinopathy to detach the tendon and making a, a preparation of the bone, is the same. Uh, it's it's like an injection of PRP. In fact, it's uh, that has been proved. That has been there is a nice paper that has been done by uh, Italian shoulder surgeon about the fact that acromioplasty is probably uh, the effect of an acromioplasty is the it's a PRP like effect. In fact, and I I, I believe in that. I I don't think that there is a, 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 a an indication to do PRP on the an international, uh, but maybe the, the, the surgery is a big uh, PRP treatment. Okay. Uh, we have a second question from Argentina. When you use PRP, do you use ultrasound to guide the procedure? Um, I, I personally I never use PRP for insertion of Achilles tendinopathy. It can be used for uh, pathology inside the tendon. But anybody like to ask to uh, to answer this question? Can we use PRP for the uh, for for the for the distal problem for the insertion? I yeah, don't so use PRP in the distal Achilles. Yep. Yeah. So I, I 
I, I have a, a comment. Um, and the, so there's sort of two questions. One is, is there any utility for PRP for insertional Achilles tendon problems? And the other is, do you need ultrasound in order to place it? So on, on the second question, the answer is, is yes. I typically will use ultrasound when I'm going to use PRP to inject the tendon. It, it helps me make sure that the needle's in the degenerative portion. I, I do think that it, when you're doing insertional tendinopathy with endoscopy, you, you can see the tendon in the front so you can lo localize yourself to it. But I, I prefer to use ultrasound just to make sure that you're in the, the tissue that you expect to be in. Now, I totally agree. I think Stefan really described it well. He, he said, when we're, when we're taking down that bone spur, we're creating this exposed subchondral bone area that is chock full of, of stem cells, right? I mean, so we're, we're essentially creating a, a healing response that'll include all the factors that exist in PRP. So I, I agree with that. And most of the time, at least when we're doing this endoscopically, um, the disease of the tendon is facing that bone. And so you're exposing that tendon to the factors that will help it heal. In my practice, the, the one place that I find PRP to be useful for insertional is only when I'm doing an endoscopic procedure and there's some portion of the tendon that's degenerative that I can't reach with my endoscope. So I wanna make sure that that part of the tendon gets a high dose of the growth factors it needs to turn over. And I'm not 100% sure that just the debridement is gonna do that for me. So if there's more of a central degeneration that I can't reach with the scope and a shaver and a, and a needle, um, I'll, I'll consider PRP in those patients. And anecdotally, I've seen good success, but I have no published data to point to. Okay. Um, we have another question, uh, sounds like this. Do you use tourniquet in arthroscopy or open procedure? Uh, Stefan, maybe. Well, I, I, I use tourniquet, at the, but uh, I, I, I try to probably, I think of doing a, a valent uh, technique in the future. And I will probably uh, uh, let uh, not use the tourniquet anymore. It's it's a project for me, but uh, for, it's 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 more easy if you use a tourniquet. The, the why, would, why would you stop using the tourniquet? Is it for in case of of pain or uh, postoperative rehab or? Uh, well, uh, your reason for yeah, because because the because of the complication because of the 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 fact that uh, it's probably better to, and also uh, for the anesthesiology also it's it's uh, when we are doing the surgery uh, uh, with a local anesthesia uh, with a uh, block and the, the, the it's it's easier if we don't have tourniquet. Okay. Um. We have a question. Uh, when do you start dorsiflexion exercises after Haglund's or in surgical Achilles tendinopathies? I think Kenneth, this would be for you. I'm sorry, Jan, could you repeat the question? I can repeat the question. When do you start dorsif dorsiflexion exercises after Haglund's or in surgical Achilles tendinopathies? That's what the question sounds. Yeah, th thank you. It's a good question. So I, I start on day five. For my endoscopic Haglund's removals, I, I start gentle dorsiflexion five days post-op. When I'm, when I'm doing an insertional debridement and, and reattaching the tendon, I, I don't start dorsiflexion until two weeks. So those, those are my two, two, two cutoffs. And it always starts very gently. Um, so you would like to rest, rest the tendon for two weeks then? Okay. Correct. Well, 
you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm uh, sorry, but I can, I have to, to, I completely agree with what you said, uh, Kenneth, about uh, the Achilles tendon. I think that it's something that we have to, to really highlight is the fact that uh, the, no matter what the surgery, the best for the tendon is to, to start a rehabilitation as soon as possible. I think this is something uh, that I, I, I really believe on that. And, uh, and, and, and I think that uh, we should uh, maybe uh, the goal of the suture, if, we, if, you do, if you do a suture of the, of the tendon, has to be uh, strong enough to support the, the rehabilitation, in fact. Yeah, I, I can, Jan, uh, if I oh. can, sorry, oh. sorry, Ken, sorry. Please, no, no. go for it. it, it just, yeah, just to, just to uh, um, um, allude on, onto these uh, two points, I think uh, both, both you and Stefan um, hit the nail on the, on, on the, on the head there. Um, I think it really depends on the type of surgery you have done for the insertion of Achilles tendinopathy. I, I see a lot, especially in our developing countries, um, people who only use one or two sutures on one line after their insertion of Achilles uh, debridement. And these are the, the ones that are really um, afraid for the dorsiflexion. If you use um, a double suture technique, or if you try and use the double row or a suture tape or an FHL, uh, then I think you need to um, increase the loading on the tendon to allow for its uh, uh, earlier healing. Uh, sorry to interrupt you guys again. No, I think it's a great, yeah. great comment. Kind of no, no, you, 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 don't, you don't necessarily have to do uh, what uh, the industry wants us to do. I mean, uh, to put uh, the most, the more... Uh, uh, um, uh, implant that you, you can, but uh, uh, I can tell you that my technique with only three anchors is very, very uh, strength, is strength enough to start the, the, the physiotherapy. And we don't need to put four anchors. <laughs> another another uh, way is uh, to allow them to move as tolerated. Pain is a very easy uh, way to check uh, what can be avoided. If they feel pain, it, you, they, they can stop. If there is no pain, they can move more. And this is uh, uh, also for the progressive weight bearing. I, I, so I, this is a great discussion. So my, I, I have a, a query. So the, the reason that I d delay it a little bit is for what I often refer to in America as the knucklehead factor. Um, so the, I've, I've had patients that if I, if I get them moving too early and they overdo it, they tend to swell and, and that's really hard to get rid of. Whereas if I shut it down for a few days and allow soft tissue rest and allow the, 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 you know, the skin and the incisions and the dissection to sort of calm down, I can be more aggressive and be comfortable with it. So, um, this may be a uniquely American phenomenon where not all of my patients <laughs> follow directions, but, um, but that, that's kind of my reasoning. I think in an ideal world, immediate range of motion makes the most sense. The science would support that. Um, but uh, but I've, I've been burned enough with some post-operative swelling that I've, that I've slowed it down just a, just a bit. It's more easy to do if you are doing endoscopic technique. True, yeah, absolutely true. Okay, thank you, gentlemen. Now, I would like to turn to Dr. Matsui. You, you discussed about the tendinopathy. You didn't mention inflammation. So my question to you would be, do you think there is a short period of inflammation uh, before you see the degenerative changes in the tendon? Sorry. 
Would you like me to repeat uh, the question? Yes, yes, please. Okay. You discussed tendinopathy, but you did not mention inflammation at all. Okay. Inflammation? Yes, inflammation yes. in the mm -hmm. tendon. Do you think there might be a short period of inflammation when the whole thing starts, like a day or two, or maybe a week or something like that? Uh, in, uh, the, uh, in the case of in, uh, insertional tendinopathy, uh, we can see the, uh, both uh, inflammation and uh, degeneration change. We can both uh, we can see both uh, change. Okay, thank you. We have a question for Stefan. What's the indication to use anchors uh, in the endoscopic technique? To, to use anchors is when you detach the, the tendon. And when do you need to de detach the tendon? Always or sometimes? Well, in fact, uh, uh, we are moving uh, more and more to uh, uh, we are, it's it's more easy uh, at the moment we are increasing the the indication of detaching the tendon in fact and we, we it's a it's a tendency that we have in france with uh, thomas bauer and uh, ronnie lopez that we are we are working on this subject and uh, where we are talking together we we i think that we are doing less and less uh, only calcaneoplasty in fact it's not science what I said. I, I, we have to, to publish our cases, but we feel more and more comfortable with this endoscopic technique, in fact. Would you like to tell us more about the large study you mentioned that you were conducting? Uh, it's right not now? already done. It's a, it's a project. We are doing a prospective study uh, in, uh, in start. Uh, uh, yes, we, the, 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 the technique has been published in Arthroscopy Technique, the, the technique, and we are we are go doing with the French Society of Arthroscopy a big uh, prospective study on this subject. Thank you. Do we have Dr. Hogan uh, with us? Yes. Are you there? Yes, I'm here, Dr. Carlson. Thank you. Um, you discussed the conservative management uh, uh, yeah, quite a lot. ES, ESWT, immobilization, night splints, etc. But you didn't really mention the results. What do you get out of it? And uh, and how many cases uh, would you say that you are good after conservative treatment, say three months, six months, and how many cases go to surgery in your hands? Oh, uh, uh, thank you for your question. It's a long, it's a long very long question. I'm sorry. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no we, we, can, we can split it also. No, no. Uh, so okay. uh, in this, I would say in my hands and in practice, insertional tendinopathy, once they have developed inflammation and pain, I would... Uh, I have not looked exactly at my series just before this, but I would say by the time majority of them make it to my practice, they have actually gone through conservative measures, a majority of them, and uh, around 80 to 85% of those individuals will move towards surgery. If conservative management has assisted them, uh, it usually gives them relief within four to six weeks in my experience, and they can reach a point of being stable until, and they modify their activities. Uh, they might, they have, are comfortable modifying their shoe wear, uh, modifying their activities to help essentially avoid uh, the pain that has been generated for them once they are out of that acute uh, inflammatory phase uh, and, symptom and symptomatic phase. When I actually use uh, shockwave therapy, 
Uh, I use a non-focused shockwave machine. It is essentially, uh, it's available in Europe and the US. Here they call it Softwave now. It was the Ortho Gold 100. It is office-based. Uh, when I utilize that machine, I will, uh, if, I will do one treatment. Here in the US, that is around 200. Uh, our system charges $200 uh, US uh, uh, for, dollars for that. It is variable across offices. Some individuals charge more. Uh, and when I do that treatment, I will do one uh, to, and then rest them in a boot and treat them in a conservative manner. And then sometimes a series of one all the way up to three uh, spread over a six week period. Uh, and again, I will then release them to activities. And if they have improved with that, uh, we will just monitor with the other conservative management uh, with physical therapy. Uh, if they have not improved, they will move towards surgery and uh, that group. Uh, the other point with physical therapy, I do believe physical therapy with insertional uh, can be effective uh, with the, those who I see uh, 20 to around 40% of the time. The remainder, they have already become so symptomatic and chronic changes, they often require surgery. Uh, Non-insertional is a definitely a different uh, discussion than today. Uh, I have found that physical therapy is much more effective in the non-insertional uh, domain. We all, than all in agree the on that. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, the time factor, uh, Dr. Ogan, would you say if that you're doing reasonably well after three months, would you go on for further three months, up to six months and see what happens? Yes. Uh, so in, in, in my, my approach with conservative before I switch to surgical, uh, at three months, I will then, if they are doing well, I will ask them to continue their modifications and their home therapy program, which is very important, um, and stretching program daily. Uh, as long as they can. Uh, once they have achieved considerable insertional tendinopathy uh, as seen on imaging, um, if, I do not believe my surgical procedure will be changed uh, in my patient population. It will not change what I would do for them. And then I'll allow the patients to decide when they are ready for surgical intervention or not. Very good. Thank you. Thank I have you. a question from the panel from, uh, uh, from participant to Stefan. The possible complications after anchor placement, uh, you see. Any comments on that, Stefan? The, the complication of anchor placement? Compli I repeat the question. Which are the possible complications after anchor placement, you see? The, well, uh, I don't are. see um, a complication. Uh, this is uh, something that we, that is well, uh, if we compare to a very big. Uh, part of our uh, that has been studied is the rotator cuff repair and i don't think that there is a lot of uh, complication in this uh, in this uh, in this type of surgery with anchors in uh, well, the question uh, was uh, was specifically about the anchors so the answer would be no yes no complications yes, yeah yeah, yeah. Okay, very good so dr hunt um uh, i I noticed that you have two different protocols, one regular, one accelerated, and you based it very much on days and weeks. Uh, and it was very much about time criteria and, and, uh, and less about uh, criteria like range of motion, uh, strength, etc. Any comment on that? Yeah, it's a great comment, Jan. So uh, the the, the time frame is a general guideline and, and yeah. seems to match up with how most recover, but we absolutely adjust it based on the athlete and how they're coming along. And, and our, our physiotherapists sort of run that um, in terms of making decisions on, on getting to the next step. 
Um, I, I do tell patients, particularly runners, that it's critical to have a physiotherapist that's monitoring them because I, I don't want them to push through pain if they're experiencing it. And I wanna make sure that they hit those milestones uh, before progressing. So the, the timeline's meant to be a guide primarily. Um, I have a question from Nasif. Um, you, I, I noticed that your two cases, you mentioned six months uh, conservative treatment. Would, would that be a, a usual time frame for you or uh, was it just a coincidence that it was the same six months in, in both cases, Nasif? Um, yes, Jan, thanks for the question. Well, we're basically a tertiary um, center for um, foot and ankle. So we usually see the patients um, at the end. One of them was in the hospital and he was, he kind of deferred his... Uh, his it, was, uh, it, was, it was before your eyes all the time. <laughs> yes, yes. And he deferred his surgery. As I, as I, as I said, he's actually um, one of our pipeline workers. So um, he's always in the hospital. Um, the question but, is, uh, no, would, would six that, pounds be, be reasonable? And I think that you... You can. Uh, uh, I think I think three to six months is reasonable. But as most of the other panel, panelists said, if you see the symptoms are flaring up and the degeneration is getting more, the patient is is reducing more and more his activity. Um, I, I I do not think, uh, especially in insertional, stepping beyond the third and fourth month, uh, still insisting on conservative treatment because, as Macaus um, Hogan just said, most of these um, do not respond properly to uh, conservative treatment. I see that Stefan wants to uh, add a comment here. Stefan, please. Oh, I, I agree. I totally agree with the six months uh, period uh, in my practice. But wouldn't wouldn't, wouldn't six months be, be fairly long? Because yes. uh, in many cases, we, would not, we wouldn't see a lot of uh, progress uh, in uh, if it's uh, insertional with calcification inside the tendon and degeneration in the tendon, etc. So... Do you think that you will progress very much from three to six months? Well, I, I, in my experience, I, 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 st I uh, start with, yes, usually it's six, it's six months for me, but uh, because I, I want to be sure to, uh, to, to do the surgery on patients that, that resist at the uh, uh, medical treatments. Very good. Dr. Canada, any comments? Uh, yes. yes, because I think that the, the difference is the total detachment of the Achilles. It takes uh, months to heal. Uh, while uh, my philosophy is slightly different, I try to save the insertion just uh, to debride and uh, to take out uh, the calcification that uh, sometimes are very big. And uh, this way, uh, I see that uh, the time uh, uh, after surgery is not so long, not uh, usually two two months. I I would say two three months. Uh, in some cases, I, I see the uh, uh, the the reason to for a delay is some bony edema of the bone of the calcaneus that, that uh, needs uh, uh, maybe sometimes uh, uh, when they start too early to. I'm I'm talking about athletes. We, they started too early to to exercise, so uh, I think uh, again that uh, uh, every every uh, every patient has uh, uh, his own uh, uh, time to heal, and uh, there is a biological difference between the patients. Well, I have seen I've seen a lot of uh, of patients that has been uh, where you have done uh, open surgery. 
And I think that one of um, an American uh, 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 doctor, surgeons, there is an history like that, that I remember that uh, they, they used to do a study about uh, the outcome of uh, Agloon disease uh, that was done openly. And the conclusion of the study was that one, one year that we have to stop to do uh, this surgery because the results was, was not good. And uh, the author has to wait two years to have good results of, of the surgery. So I think that one of the problems of, the, of uh, the outcome of this surgery is the fact that you are doing an open technique. And, uh, and uh, I, I think that the, 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 we will change. I'm sure of that. There is something that I feel is that we will have the same type of, uh, of uh, improvement of the rotator cuff repair when we did we we start to do we stop to do that uh, uh, openly and we start to do it uh, arthroscopically, and I think it's the same type of uh, improvement of the surgery that we we so we need to prove it. I I, I agree, but I, I, I but uh, I, I it's my uh, thought today. We, I could are say wait, you we, are, we are waiting for a good study, Stefan. So it yeah. will be exciting. Yeah, so. yeah. I did a study comparing endoscopic and mini-open agrund surgery. But probably we are talking of different pathologies because I was referring just to the agrund deformity, not insertional pathologies, real insertional pathologies. This makes the difference. In 1997, I presented the ISACOS Congress in Buenos Aires a series of uh, track and field athletes operated in local anesthesia for uh, agron deformity in local anesthesia and they uh, uh, with good results. Uh, so that, that's uh, why I, it depends on the surgery we use. That's the difference. Um, Jan, can I, can I just ask uh, Stefan a question if you don't mind? Please go on. Yes. Um, uh, Stefan, as usual, uh, a great technique. Um, and thank you for the presentation. I, I just want to ask you, do you have a cutoff at the, um, the amount of insertional Achilles um, tendinopathy? And how do you approach that? Because I noticed at the beginning of the surgery, you basically did a percutaneous um, release of the Achilles and using the minimally invasive um, burrs, you removed the bone, I think maybe even semi-blind, if I, if I might use, uh, yes. forgive my, my word, um, or, or maybe with a C-arm, and then you proceeded to reattach the tendon. So how much of the yeah. tendon did you remove? Did you actually attack the tendon itself? And do you have a cutoff uh, to as much soft tissue or, or this much bone? Sorry for the long no, question, um, but I think I, it will clear I... a lot in our minds. Basically, what I'm doing is that I'm putting a, a burr, a mini invasive burr, in fact, in the, in the space, because I learned something uh, in foot uh, endoscopy, is that when you put a burr, and it's the same thing for the arthroscopy of the forefoot, in fact, if you put a burr and if you create a space, we are not in the joint, so we have to, to do, it's an endoscopic surgery. And, in, and you will see it's if you start with a burr and create a space, uh, uh, with a, to, when you remove the bone, then you can put a scope and you have a perfect vision. And that this is the 
the thing that I'm doing now uh, for endoscopic, uh, the any any type of endoscopy that I'm doing in the in in the foot, for example, when I'm when I'm doing an art, an, artrode, an arthrosis of the AMP joint, I'm doing the same uh, technique, and then with the bird, I'm going uh, from proximal to distal, and I pass through the 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 bone. Uh, from uh, from distal to, to and, and I detach the, the tendon like that and then I will control with the scope if I, I remove all the bone and if there is still uh, bone to remove uh, calcification to remove and it's very easy to see after if you have prepared everything. I would like to add to this question Stefan can you also use your technique if you have uh, uh, calcification inside the tendon as well? Yes, I, I, I did some cases with classification, as, as I, as I tell, told you, uh, when you put your scope, after you can see the calcification and you can remove the calcification uh, endoscopically. Very, it's, it's, it's quite easy to do. Okay, uh, very good, very good. Dr. Takao, any, any comment? Any comment? Yeah, thank you very much. So, yeah. yeah. So, so my part is a very, very fundamental part. So, I'm not, so there is no discussion for me. So, uh, but the, I, I agree with uh, Stefan so, uh, to perform the endoscopic surgery. So it's very uh, nice. But so we should, uh, uh, we should. Uh, uh, con uh, so, but maybe it, uh, most of the audience concerns about the tensile strength of the uh, suchanka. So only three suchanka, I, I feel it's only three suchanka is not enough for the uh, strength, as a uh, strong accurate stand on. How do you think about well, Stefan? I can give you only my experience is that uh, now I, I'm putting a weight, the weight bearing is allowed at three weeks without uh, orthesis for most is of it, the patients. Is it, is it full weight bearing, Stefan? Or yes, yes, full weight bearing. And so far, I don't have a, a problem, but... Do you mean problem with, for instance, tendon rupture? With a, with a suture or with a strange? Because I think that it's not in, in the... Even with three, three sutures like, like that, the weakest mm. point is the tendon, it's not the, the suture or the anchor. Uh, thank you, Stefan. Uh, Dr. Takao, I would like to continue with you. Um, and I would like to get your mention on the role of the retrocalcanear bursitis, because there we have inflammation. We all talk about bursitis. So what do you think about the role of the bursitis uh, in the insertional uh, Achilles tendinopathy? Yeah. So uh, the, uh, the uh, definition is completely different. The insertion Achilles tendinopathy and the bursitis. So uh, the, for the bursitis, it's very easy to treat. So, uh, uh, so under uh, ultrasonography injection or any other. So, but the insertion Achilles tendinopathy is a different definition. So the treatment is completely different for me. And what is the role in the bursitis in the pathophysiology of the uh, of the in insertional tendinopathy? Do you think that's uh, that yeah. might be the start of it, or it's just a symptom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, just I mean, just as, uh, the symptom is. Uh, this is the the definition is the Haglund syndrome. So Haglund syndrome has a triad. So bursitis in such an case, and the bony prominence. So it's a very different uh, uh, condition. So maybe so. Uh, 
so but but it's it's not already existed together so maybe so there's a very small uh connection between three three triad okay. this is my opinion yeah um dr hogan you mentioned night splints as uh, uh immobilization or partial immobilization uh i would like you to uh, kind of uh, move on about this a little bit do you use it uh, are you successful with it yes uh, so uh for individuals who have a tight gastroc uh, soleus complex i believe the night splint is a great adjunct uh individuals will usually wear it for one to two weeks to be honest if we're lucky and so what i've advised patients to do from a compliance standpoint is when they are uh, sitting and relaxing at home uh, and watching their afternoon uh, television or device that is a good time to get that continuous stretch uh, somebody, and it really does combat uh, equinus in my experience. And again, for conservative management prior to offering a surgical intervention, I believe it is a, a great adjunct. Uh, when you look at the success rates of utilizing night splints, there are studies that do reference this. Uh, and for those uh, who have success with conservative treatment, uh, it is around 75 to 80% believe the night splint helped them. But I believe that can be achieved uh, with, quite frankly, a home exercising program. Uh, but some patients just do not uh, follow that as well. But telling them to put the splint on for 20 minutes a day or 15 to 20 minutes a day is quite a simple task to ask of some. I would like to make a personal uh, comment here. Uh, many of you have mentioned the, uh, I would say, groundbreaking paper by where Nick van Dijk was the first author about uh, terminology, because that this was it was published in in, uh, in case study. Uh, for 10 years ago, and uh, I was one of the co-authors. And I think this is, a, this is a very, very important paper. And I think that all of us, we should read it and we should think about using correct terminology. This was just a personal uh, reflection. So um, I think we are, uh, we are moving to the, to the end of, the, uh, of this uh, webinar. Nasif, you mentioned steroids. Any, any, yes. any further comment on, on the use of steroids or not? It was done outside our hospital, and I, this is why I put it there just as a note. It's an insertion, Lachilis. It was, uh, he came with a report that um, yeah. the um, preceding physician tried to insert the steroid into the bursitis, into the retrocalcaneal bursitis. Um, I, I personally don't use it. Uh, there is a documented um, um, incidence of uh, rupture. Uh, following the uh, injection, so no, I, I don't use it um, in insertion. But, then, uh, but the documents are not 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 too many. It's just a few case series or case reports or, or so on. So uh, not so not so many. Um, yeah. I agree, but I I, I would I, I do not trust myself, especially without an ultrasonography, to go in between the paratendon and the tendon um, and insert it. So um, I don't know. Um, I have no personal use with it. Any further questions, comments from the from the audience? We have a lot of people, almost 150 uh, people who are listening. Dr. Matsui, any comments? Me, I have a comment and a question for you, uh, Jan. Jan. Okay. Do you think, uh, and it's all for all the panels. I have this question. Do you think that we are talking about something? I, I, I would like to see the the problem in the phylogenetic way. And do, do you think that what we are, the pathology of that is the fact that we are bipod and we are not, uh, 
anymore uh, on four. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good, very good comment. I, I have no, I have no answer. But uh, anybody else who has a who's a good response to this? Uh, very good thought. Like uh, it's very when you and uh, start to discuss, Stefan. Yeah. Any it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Stefan. Yeah. I don't I don't know if that's a three minutes before the buzzer question, but <laughs> but uh, I mean, my, my answer is probably yes. I mean, teleologically, it makes sense. Uh, it makes sense that that how we've evolved is a contributor. Um, I, I think that you know uh, body weights have increased as well. I think that the demands that particularly the athletic population put you know, on their heel is a contributor. Um, I think that, you know, that the fact that I have patients in their 80s who are running marathons and, mm -hmm. and um, you know, so we're, 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 our longevity and our activity is evolving very rapidly and per, perhaps more rapidly than our biology can evolve. So I think it's definitely a contributor, although I, I don't know if I can really quantify it. Do you think that maybe increased body weight in general is uh, is more of a problem here? I, I absolutely do because you, you know a, a running, as you saw in the chart I showed, a, a running jump puts you know eight, eight times your body weight, you know, through your Achilles down to the insertion. So as body weight goes up, the the amount of force that 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 tendon and the insertion sees goes up eight times that. So um, so yeah, I I think that that has to be a contributor lifestyle um you know bmi and and you know we have a lot of, i mean i live in colorado we have i have century runners i have a 75 year old people who are running 100 mile races and that's a that's a lot to to put on a tendon and um i i don't think that that was happening you know 50 years ago you know let alone uh you know thousands of years ago so just just my my perspective and ken when it was occurring it was occurring on clay it was definitely not occurring on what we are running on and off of now. Yeah, um, but less, so less concrete in the, <laughs> in the quadrupedal days for sure. So I think that we are, um, we are, we are um, starting to run out of time or maybe, maybe we have, uh, we have all night. But uh, anyway, I think this has been a great discussion. It's been a great webinar. And I would like to turn the, the word back to, uh, to the chairman, Dr. Kanata, Dr. Hogan. So please take over and maybe some final words and, and thank you on, on your side. Thank you, Jon. It has been a great discussion. And uh, uh, I think uh, this uh, we, uh, should have been appreciated by the audience. Uh, Mac, uh, would you say some final word to close? No, thank you, Juan. Uh, uh, this has been a great uh, webinar. Uh, a special thanks to Dr. Carlson uh, for great uh, moderating and questions and generating scientific and evidence-based discussion. Uh, and those uh, who have attended uh, and uh, the great, our great panelists from the Issacos Leg, Ankle and Foot Committee. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you everybody for being with us tonight. I think it's been very, very valuable. Take care, everybody. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Everyone.